Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Can I tell you what I'm most excited about? I, well, I'm, I wasn't expecting that question, but yes, please do. <laughs> Why do you give me some time? You can think about it. We've got time. <laughs> um, we are only, only two reviews away from the Lazy Summer of Podcasting. And can I tell you, after the shit run we've had the last couple weeks, <laughs> I am really looking forward to not having to read anything for a little bit. I could not agree more. It's been rough, to say the least. We did A Decent Ride, which was a rough, rough read. We did Zoo 2. Yeah. Now, I have high hopes for the book we're reviewing this week, which is Disappearance at Devil's Rock by good friend of the podcast, Paul Tremblay. Before Livius enthusiastically reads the, uh, the synopsis for you, I'm going to read you the truncated author bio. So usually when we set up our document with all the information we want to talk about on the episode... We pull the information about the author and the, the book from... Usually we just go to Amazon because it's quick and easy instead of trying to find each publisher's website and stuff like that. Uh, so I went to, as always, Amazon to pull the information for this. And first of all, the first thing I saw was the book synopsis, which I trimmed at least two to three paragraphs off of that. Then I got to the author bio, and between the two of them, it was like a page and a half of text. So... I cut about 60% out of the author bio as well, just uh, keeping it down to the bare minimum. Um, I mean, some people just get so indulgent with this stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, in the time it took you to explain that, you could have just read the longer bio. Well, yeah, but this is more satisfying personally for me <laughs> to publicly shame someone who probably worked really hard to figure out the exact words that they wanted to use in an author bio. Um, <clears throat> I'm just hoping it wasn't Paul, because I'm totally shitting on it. And I like Paul a lot. He's a great guy. So here's a little bit about him. Paul Tremblay is the author of A Head Full of Ghosts, The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and Floating Boy and the Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which he co-authored with Stephen Graham Jones. He's the author of the short story collection In the Meantime. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and numerous Year's Best anthologies. He's the co-editor of four anthologies, including Creatures, 30 Years of Monster Stories, co-edited with John Langan. I'm going to do a little editing on the fly. He is also the MFing winner of the Bram Stoker Award. Uh, yeah, and noticing something that's missing from this bio? Yeah, yeah, I noticed. You know, it's rough out there, man. <laughs> I'm going to, I don't know, how many how many authors are in the book anthology? Oh, yeah, I should know that. 25. So I'm going to look up 25 author bios tonight, and I'm going to come up with a comprehensive list of where it's mentioned, and then I'm going to send out a nice reminder email that their their bio <laughs> needs updating if it's not on there. I got to tell you, there's going to be 24 people probably that you have to email because fucking Fred Venturini, first page in his book, first line of his bio is the book anthology. Front and center. And that's why... Fred is our favorite author. Exactly. All right. Um, let's talk about this for a little bit, because I know you took out two paragraphs, and one of them was just, you know, the, the whole Stephen King commentary on... on um, head Full of Ghosts. Uh, right, on A Head yeah. Full of Ghosts. But, so as a reader... Now, I know why we hate long synopses, right? Because we, we have to we read, have to read them. them, yeah. So here's what I want. Listeners, um, hop out on the book podcast listening group or shoot us an email or a note or whatever, smoke signals or whatever it is you do. And let us know if you prefer longer synopses. It, it just as someone who's looking for books. Um, you know, we've talked about this a lot. If it's an author that I already read, I, I typically don't even read the synopsis because I'm going to read that author because I love their other stuff. So it really doesn't matter what this next book is about. But I'm wondering what the average person, if a long synopsis is something they, they even bother with when they're looking at a book, or do they look at this brick of text and just go, yeah, you know what, never mind. I see it like the whole, like, too long, didn't read situation, you know? Like, give me as much as you can in as few words as you can. I need a hard-boiled synopsis, I think is what I'm trying to say. got to say this review is starting off spectacularly. <laughs> so, here is the synopsis. Late one summer night, Elizabeth Sanderson receives the devastating news that every mother fears. Her 13-year-old son, Tommy, has vanished without a trace in the woods of a local park. The search isn't yielding any answers, and Elizabeth and her young daughter, Kate, struggle to comprehend Tommy's disappearance. Feeling helpless and alone, their sorrow is compounded by anger and frustration. The local and state police have uncovered no leads. Josh and Lewis, 
I'm going to go with Lewis. The friends who were the last to see Tommy before he vanished may not be telling the whole truth about that night in Borderland State Park when they were supposedly hanging out at a landmark the local teens have renamed Devil's Rock. Living in an all-too-real nightmare riddled with worry, pain, and guilt, Elizabeth is wholly unprepared for the strange series of events that follows. She believes a ghostly shadow of Tommy materializes in her bedroom, while Kate and the other local residents claim to see a shadow peering through their windows in the dead of night. Then, random pages torn from Tommy's journal begin to mysteriously appear. Entries that reveal an introverted teenager obsessed with the phantasmagoric, the loss of his father, killed in a drunk driving accident a decade earlier. A folk tale involving the devil in the woods of Borderland, and a horrific incident that Tommy believed connects them. As the search grows more desperate and the implications of what happened become more haunting and sinister, no one is prepared for the shocking truth about that night and Tommy's disappearance at Devil's Rock. Well, that was a mouthful. It was. <laughs> no, I do think that it was It was fair. And, and you know, when I think about it, there's a lot to cover about this. Because really, you could just say, hey, Elizabeth loses her son. Yeah. What happens next? So, so first of all, the synopsis is great. And so we're probably going to just dip into the parts of the story that are uh, important to talk about and probably do it in a little bit of a linear fashion but I feel like the synopsis is so rock solid that if you want to know what happens in the story you could read that we're here to tell you kind of like you know what we thought about it the story does start out with um, Elizabeth getting a phone call from Josh one of Tom, her son Tommy's friends and um in a very awkward early teens kid kind of way reveals by asking Elizabeth if Tommy is at home that Tommy's missing and I feel like uh, the panic wasn't immediate you know there was a couple of things that had to be checked out there was phone calls that had to be made texts to be sent to um to Tommy just to kind of see, hey, what's going on? So the panic kind of set in in a little bit of, of waves. Um, but it wasn't too long before uh, Elizabeth had some fears that shit was really, really going bad. Yeah, and rightfully so, because Tommy is legit missing. Um, we see the the story kind of unfold um, mostly through um, the eyes of, of the friends who, much like teenagers aren't necessarily real forthcoming in the first pass through of what's uh, what's happening so they uh you know like like i said any teenager you got to dig deeper and deeper and through the course of the book we find out um that maybe they weren't real honest at first and some other things materialize that uh as it said kind of in the synopsis you know it makes it a little more sinister the initial story from the, the friends is they had they're having a sleepover at Josh's house, and Josh's house butts up against this um, this park, um, Borderland, and they went in. They decided to go into the park and hang out at night without the the permission from the parents or whatever. They snuck out to just go hang out in the park, and at some point, Tommy just ran off into the forest, and they thought that he was playing a prank, and so they waited a while, but then went back to Josh's house to see if. Tommy had joined up, was going to join up back up with them uh, at the house. When they got there, that's when they realized he wasn't there and called to see if he went home. So that was the original story, pretty much the most innocent version of the story that we're going to talk about uh, throughout this review. But that's kind of where it starts. And so it's just like, okay, he's not where they thought he was going to be. Now we need to find out where he is. They call the police and they start the whole search process and everything. Um, then it starts to kind of take a turn. Yeah, and we go back and forth between the story that is Elizabeth and, and, you know, her mother comes to stay with them and his little sister kind of dealing with this and uh, doing different things to, to try and, and help um, the search efforts and finding out more and more about what happened, not just uh, not just the night that he disappeared, but in the, the weeks leading up to it. Um, one of the things I really liked, and, and yeah, I know I mentioned this on podcasts before, a lot of times I think... I don't want to say lesser authors, but other authors would have said, hey, this took place in the 70s. So you could eliminate cell phones and things like Instagram and uh, Snapchat and Facebook from, you know what I mean, from the from the story. Right. Um, Paul, Paul dove head in. I think he hit 
every social media medium that, that, you know, anybody who has a smartphone or who's an avid smartphone user probably goes through in one day. And that's one of the things I, I liked about this is that he could have very easily, there's nothing that, that prohibits the story from being set 20 years ago. You know what I mean? And, and being easier than having to deal with internet trolls and, you know, conversations that can't be gotten back because they happen in Snapchat versus just the regular text messages or, or whatever. Some of the things that could have made it maybe a little easier on him. Um, as a writer, he dove into like, this is today, this is all modern stuff. Yeah, and actually quite accurately, too, I have to say. So um, I have some thoughts about the social media stuff. Um, first of all, yeah, he embraces it. Second of all, he does it really accurately. So if you look at... Um, generationally uh, the usage of different social media platforms adults Facebook and that's about it like people who are you know in their 30s and above it's Facebook um, younger people maybe a little Twitter but it's mostly Instagram and Snapchat like those are the things that are what the young those are the social media for the young younger generations and um, it's very consistently done through the book where he has the right generations using the right you know the the typical for that generation social media so um, the mom Elizabeth is always looking at this Facebook page um, and the grandmother too on Facebook the teens Tommy uh, Tommy's friends, all of the, like, the younger, when whenever they talk about social media with, with that group, primarily it's Snapchat, and just a pinch of Instagram, Twitter lands somewhere in the middle, but it's mostly, like, uh, Kate, the younger kid, too, so that really tracks with what actually happens in, like, you know, our current society, so not only does he embrace and integrate social media, but he does it in a way that's, like, factually accurate which i thought was really well done well like i said there's like a complexity there to get to maintain that and that's why i liked um minecraft you know they're talking about actually just having conversations yeah. inside the minecraft game which I, I know it is i've never played i'm not familiar with it but boy I, I will tell you that i think 13 year old boys that's what they do it's all minecraft all the time so yeah kudos to, to him for um either having a small army of children around him constantly going dad no no they didn't, right. you know, they didn't twit that. <laughs> They're not on MySpace, pops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, or this guy's just got his finger on the pulse, man. So, uh, maybe well, maybe Paul yeah. can tell us what the next big social media breakout will be. He's, I know, and here's another thing that eventually will come up, maybe in more detail. But Homeboy's got kids, and I think this came up when we reviewed Head Full of Ghosts too. Homeboy's got kids, you know, that are probably around the age of some of the kids in this book. So I'm assuming some of his field research was more just an observation of his family you know um, dynamic I'm guessing um, but also like I kept reading this knowing this guy's got like kids around this age how could he write about something that's so devastating to parents like that had to be so like maybe that's why it felt so authentic and, and you know creepy but damn dude well that's I think that you know it's right what you know and, and although he probably I say probably because I don't know. Maybe he hasn't lost a kid in the woods, but uh, you know what I mean. Who <laughs> used to have more better, kids? Yeah, who better you know than than a parent to write about you know the kind of desperation and and the craziness that that can occur. Yeah, you know, there's even yeah. like the, the the weird moments of let's say levity, you know, that that creep in a little bit while this is happening. That you know, that's how real life is. You know, most people don't go into depression just not talk anymore. You know what I mean? There's there's moments where you forget or you find yourself, you know, your, your pre-tragedy self, but then kind of sink back in. So a, a lot of it felt very true to life. I kept thinking, so I've, um, I've watched numerous episodes of like 2020 when they, uh, when they do the kind of like unsolved mysteries type thing. And, you know, a lot of this, even though it wasn't done in interview style or, or anything like that, felt a lot like watching a 2020 story about a missing kid, you know, three years ago where, you know, whatever happened to little Tommy kind of 2020 story. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, one thing that uh, takes and this is I think it's it's a horror story, right? It's supposed to be a horror. Um, You know, I think it's. Or no, there's probably a category because Head Full of Ghosts fell into 
horror. the same category. I don't yeah. know if it's it's not traditional horror. It's family horror. I, I don't yeah. I don't know. I'd like there's a different category for what he's doing, which is <laughs> horror within families with maybe a touch of supernatural. Right, like the unsure potential supernatural. So anyway, the reason I bring that up, the reason I asked that was because something creepy starts to happen in the household uh, with Elizabeth and Kate and um, uh, Elizabeth's mom, who, like Livia said, came to visit. Uh, at some point, pages from some book, like a, like a notebook type of thing, in the middle of the night start appearing in the living room on the floor. And the first time Elizabeth discovers these pages, uh, she reads them and discovers that it seems like it's from a diary of Tommy's. And it reveals some things with Tommy's life. At first, they're kind of general, um, but it happens more than once. And, and each time, it kind of almost serves to reveal either just something characteristic of Tommy that she wasn't aware of, or something that might be a little bit closely tied to what's going on um, with his disappearance. So this is something that starts to happen, and it becomes this kind of uh, weird thing, because obviously it's freaky that pages from a book are disappearing in the house in the middle of the night, um, but it gives Elizabeth this kind of hope to kind of carry on while they're trying to find uh, Tommy. Yeah, and that ties ties into the creepy um, factor, you know, perhaps supernatural factor. People are reporting someone looking in their window at night. Um, it's mentioned in the synopsis as well as Elizabeth um, at one point being sure she sees kind of Tommy's shadowy figure in her in her bedroom. Um, so yeah, it, it all plays into this real life horror, which is you know again, you know, every parent's worst nightmare. I would imagine that you know your your child is missing, um, and then it kind of turns turns I don't want to say turns into, but turns a little bit towards uh, a supernatural factor. So how are these pages getting there? You know, as they they Tommy wasn't known to keep a diary and you know, lots of sketchbooks, but no, you know, no nothing written down and who's leaving them and how are they appearing and that kind of thing. So you get this whole other, you know, supernatural touch to the the real horror, the the you know regular normal non supernatural horror, I guess. Yeah, and for anybody that's a reader of Paul Tremblay's other stuff, especially Head Full of Ghosts, it's written in that way where it could very easily be explained as supernatural and just as easily explained through something that could happen in real life. So he really walks that line and he forces you to kind of decide, do I believe it's supernatural? Do I believe that there's a legitimate explanation? And that's that's what I love about his writing so much is that he crafts the story in such a way that so much of it is up to you to decide what you believe. Um, the pages kind of push back. What, what's revealed in the pages end up at some point pushing back to the friends where they say, okay, hey, friends, what about this? And then the friends have to reveal they know more than they said originally. And there's kind of this uh, play back and forth of every time that there's new information revealed on one side, it picks up with either being confirmed on the other side or even more information and kind of elaboration. So there's this kind of, it's not a cat and mouse, but um, it's kind of this back and forth push and pull um, between this weird information materializing and how that story builds out, um, influencing what the friends are saying. Uh, and it introduces inevitably, I think it's time to talk about uh, a character we haven't mentioned yet, so I'm going to let Livia talk a little bit about Arnold. Arnold is a, I don't know, mid-20s, maybe? Right? Yeah, he's like, considerably, yeah, 23, yeah. 24, something like that. Yeah, he's considerably older than somebody who should be hanging out with uh, 13-year-old kids, unless he's uh, an uncle or, or babysitting or, or something along those lines, but... He's the guy who like buys him beer at the Seven Eleven kind of guy, and uh, it, it turns out that you know the the Lewis and Josh, um, you know, they didn't think it was important to mention this guy. And like I said, with teenagers, right? <laughs> so um, this guy's been hanging around with them, and he's the one who tells them about the the kind of folklore behind Split Rock. 
right? I think that's what it's what it's called, and and why it's called Devil's Rock, which has to do with you know a folk tale and and the devil being in this town, and you know somebody kind of fighting the devil, so to speak, at at this at this um at this thing. So now you go from missing to yeah, he ran off in the woods. So yeah, he ran off into the woods. But yeah, there was this older weird guy that we were hanging out with. What thought it was cool to hang out with thirteen year olds and like drink beer. So now you've added a whole nother element of terror or horror to it is that you, you might have, you know, an adult that's very specifically wanted to harm Tommy. Yeah. Um, and we're getting probably dangerously close to, uh, spoilers. So I don't know how much more story we can talk about. Um, we haven't mentioned much Kate, the sister. So Kate is Tommy's younger sister by a couple years. And, um, Obviously, her life is impacted by Tommy being missing, uh, but also just being a teenager and having to go through it herself with um, her mom kind of losing her shit as the time ticks on. And this is one of those things that this story unfurls over the course of probably, I would say, uh, over a week, probably two to three weeks overall. So it's a long... I mean, I've never thankfully had to deal with someone missing but i would imagine that hours feel like days i don't know what weeks would feel like um so kate's the younger sister and um she plays the part of she traditionally was the uh shit because she was like a quiet uh wouldn't talk kind of kid right i think she was just she's a preteen who was kind of into her own you know, a lot of listening yeah. to the headphones and, you know, but I do, I do want to correct, I want to apologize for Rob's insensitivity. We did go through something a little similar in, uh, with A. Adam Otten when he went missing, <laughs> but it was only, it was only a couple of days and we, we didn't take it quite as far as Kate and Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny. I'm the insensitive one in this one. So I know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I went out and put up posters. Have you seen me? And it was yeah. just like a shadowy figure. It's triple A under it. <laughs> Just letters, A at a mutton. Yeah. Picture of a pie. Yep. Uh, so, uh, after Tommy goes missing, Kate actually ends up being uh, a real source of strength and support. And um, in in a, in a way that you wouldn't expect of a, of a teen or a preteen, she has a very we're-in-this-together kind of feel with her mom. So she's really a great source of strength for her mom while they're going through this. And, um, she plays well. And there's another like kind of part to the story that would probably spoil stuff. So, but, um, yeah, she's, she's a big part. If there was two main characters in this book, it's going to be Elizabeth and Kate. So it'd be weird if we talked about, um, this story without her, we see most of the book through the perspective of Elizabeth and Kate, when it's not from the perspective of the two friends, Lewis and Josh. And it's a story about Tommy, but through those perspectives. So Kate was a big part of the book. Yes. Yes, she was. Um, and I, um, I like that, you know, because really whose eyes do you see this kind of thing through, right? If there's somebody that's missing, you never, you know, until you find them, you never get their story. Right. So it'd been a little weird to see kind of Tommy's, um, you know, like if this cut back and forth from Tommy to his mom and his sister looking for him, I think it would be a very different and, and probably less enjoyable kind of mystery, in quotation marks, yeah. um, what happened to Tommy's story. Um, we do see it through a couple of mediums, though. So there are handwritten pages in the paper copy. Yes, I read a paper copy, so there will be no quotes. Uh, there are handwritten um, notes, you know, so you're going from reading your uh your omnipotent narrator to um reading handwritten diary entries from tommy and, and it, it some parts transcripts even from um police interviews so it, it does change mediums a little bit um through the course of the story not a lot it's not like a real back and forth but it, it is nice at some points getting out of you know what i mean that that real standard narrator kind of thing and seeing some actual media yeah in a very paul trembley way um 
I don't know if I feel like we can talk much about story, but uh, there is one thing that was painfully clear, even from the beginning, and I have to imagine, I don't know if this was intentional from Paul because it's hot, because we saw the story from the perspective of the family of the missing kid, um, but it seemed like, to me at least, that almost all of the progress that's made in understanding what happened to Tommy is not evidence that's revealed <laughs> by the police, but it's information that's discovered by Kate and Elizabeth uh, or revealed from the friends because of things that Kate and Elizabeth figured out. So um, throughout the book, very consistently, the police are doing their best and they're trying hard and they're doing their police things. But whenever real progress is made, it's because of information that came from somewhere else. It's interesting. I didn't think about that, but you're right. And I don't know, you know, in a real world situation like this, kid goes missing in the woods. You know, not a lot of evidence to be gathered, right? Because it's in the woods. Um, I don't know. I don't know how this would play out in real life. I guess I'll have to watch more 2020 episodes and pay attention more carefully on <laughs> on who solves. You know, usually it's like these cops and then there's like a weird tip two years after yeah. the case seems to be how all those end. But well. Uh, so a point that I would like to make is that there was some important information that was discovered, I believe, at some point by kind of looking through the kids' rooms. And, I mean, maybe not important, but, like, some information was discovered by looking through the kids' rooms. But they didn't initially do that. They didn't do that until later on in the investigation after time had passed and they realized, oh, um... Some, this specific thing happened, maybe we should look for more like this. And I'm specifically not saying what I'm talking about, not to spoil anything. And so, um, while it may just be that this is typical of a missing persons case, I felt that it was almost intentional that the police were not really um, pulling their weight. Paul hates the police? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, that's his, his... Very veiled way of saying the police are worthless. His fuck the police moment i think that's right but the detective was very nice she was allison and she was kind of dealing with her own stuff um and and trying to deal with this but yeah a little inept as as a police officer apparently (laughs) yeah yeah i think we're done with story i don't know i mean we've talked about the characters we've talked about the story um you know we talked a little bit about writing style paul's a great writer um this flows (laughs) i I mean it, it just the story flows it's it's smooth you know, I, I just came out of two books, even though one of them was ridiculously short, where, you know, the most I could read was four pages and I had to put it down and do something else. And I read this in, I don't know, three, maybe four sittings. So, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, I don't want to say it's super easy to read, like it's written at a fourth grade level, but it's super easy to get through. Like it's, you know, there, there are no impediments in this book, you know, in, in how the story is told or in dull moments or it's all very um, well-paced. I'll agree. I uh, did read this in one sitting, and um, I don't know how many pages is in your copy, but mine was 337. So it's a bigger book, but um, it just paces great, and uh, it's engaging enough to keep you make you want to keep flipping the pages. Um, in a, I don't know. Paul just makes it really easy to read what he's writing. He, he doesn't complicate things, and his style is just so natural-feeling. He really embodies what I feel would actually happen in a situation like this. One thing I'd like to observe, uh, having now read both Headful of Ghosts and um, this, Disappearance of Devil's Rock, Headful of Ghosts, I thought, was just a goddamn slam dunk, and I didn't know how he was going to top it, but, like, he pulled so much more emotion and um, really nailed emotional character development in a way that... um, I don't think a lot of people could do. So it was just like a step up from the previous writing. Um, so, yeah, writing, he just he killed it. Are we going to do some spoiler talk, or what oh, do you think? Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think this would be a good time to jump over to spoiler talk. If you are uh, contributing to our Patreon at the $5 level, there's going to be a little bit of extra conversation about this spoilery things so that we can just get this out of our heads because there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, So jump over there and listen to that. If you are not, what you'll hear next is a wrap-up, some ratings, and then some other stuff. 
All right, I know this seems like we just said we're going to spoiler talk, and then there's me talking about we just did we just did spoiler talk. So if you're a Patreon contributor at the five dollar level or more, um, there's a there's a lot to be heard actually that's uh, super <laughs> spoilery about this book. I don't recommend you listening to that unless you've read this book or have zero intention of reading the book, and then maybe you'll want to read the book because you hear some of the spoiler stuff. I don't know. At any rate, Rob's gonna take us into a wrap up. All right, so this is the third novel that we have read and reviewed from Paul Tremblay. You'll remember we did Swallowing a Donkey's Eye. I think it was episode like 99 or something like that. Then we did Head Full of Ghosts, and now we're doing this one. We also included him in the book Anthology, which um, that story was awesome. That story was just really, really cool. Uh, scenes from the City of Garbage in the City of Clay, or whatever it was called. It was, it's a really long title. Um I have enjoyed thoroughly everything I've read by Paul, and um, he's one of the authors where him, Stephen Graham Jones, a bunch of other authors that I really wish sometimes that I just had the time to sit down and dig into their back catalog because everything I've read by Paul is just awesome. And um, this book specifically kind of, I feel like, builds on um, Paul establishing himself as a a modern, contemporary... um, I would say... I don't know how you want to... I, I could say this would be easily be horror, psychological thriller, whatever you want to say, but um, I mean, straight up literary fiction, it totally fits that too. Um, it's just the next step in his evolution of, of being an incredible writer. I thought the story was incredibly well crafted. You'll hear that in what we just talked about also in the spoiler in the spoiler uh, talk over on Patreon. I just gush. Um, character development was man- magnificent. Uh, the story was was compelling, and and it was always you never knew what was coming next. And I always had always had you guessing. So I, I can't find a flaw in this book at all. Um, I thought it was great, and I'm gonna go five stars. Yeah, what Rob said. Um, keep reading. Yeah, keep reading. Um, this was a very modern story about a very modern fear. I mean, I guess a fear that people have had for years, but it was treated in a very modern fashion. Um, sometimes I think maybe today we think kids are safer being farther out because they have cell phones and you know what I mean? Like they have this, this anchor to the rest of the world that they didn't have, say in the seventies or eighties, you know, when I was a a teenager in the, in the eighties, you know, if I was gone, there was no way for my parents to know where I was or for me to call for help from the woods or or whatever it was, you know, a payphone or something, you know, so I could see where life is uh, probably a little easier for teens and that maybe they have a little more freedom because they they have a way to to communicate with their parents and or emergency services or whatever so he tells a story that as i mentioned earlier in the review could have probably be done a little easier if he would have just set it back 15 20 years um but he chose not to and, and i appreciate that um, I mentioned before on the podcast, and I'll mention again, sometimes I think that those stories are a little bit of a cop-out because one cell phone could have fixed the whole problem, and that's why we're telling the story in the 70s instead of trying to work around the modern technology. Um, you know, in this case, we, we even introduced, you know, like the little cheap home security camera, and, you know, that's going to capture things, but it doesn't, and there are good reasons, and you know what I mean? So it's all crafted really well. Paul is clearly a 13-year-old kid. Um, trapped inside an adult body because he hit um, everything the way I would expect, the way I view teenagers, at, at least from from my little knowledge of them. Um, stories well told, very very mainstream appeal. Um, uh, reads smooth as glass, no trouble getting through this book at all. But there are some sinister and and perhaps struggling a little bit, maybe maybe some supernatural stuff in there too that that. Uh, can take a, a, a real horror story, the, the 2020 horror story that I talked about earlier, and maybe make it into something else. I don't know. A lot of that's left up to the, the reader, as in his previous work. Rob mentioned Swallowing a Donkey's Eye. And when I look at these last two books, and I think, although I really enjoyed Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, um, it would appear that, um, I don't want to say he's grown as a writer, but that at least he's honed in on the the genre maybe that's perfect for him so um i really enjoyed this much like i enjoyed his other books um i'm also going to give it five stars five stars if you were a hardo you would have given it like two stars that fu- i've never heard that fucking word before i'm glad you <laughs> mentioned that i'm gonna retract part of a star because i think he made that shit up don't uh, retract but, shit yeah i'm not retracting anything <laughs> but let's see define hardo there's like someone who's trying too hard right 
A hardo is a person who tries extremely hard at everything. Most times, a hardo will try very hard at things that do not require excessive effort. This is from the Paul <laughs> Trembley. Yeah, PaulTrembley.com. Um, Urban Dictionary um, submitted by Paul Trembley. So there you go. <laughs> no, it wasn't him, right? No, it wasn't him. I don't know. I didn't look. I was reading it off the, you know, uh, just yeah. the, I didn't click into yeah. Urban Dictionary. But that, yeah, that <laughs> word. I was like, I don't, I've never, I knew right what he meant when he said it, but I was like, ah, I don't know. Hardo. Huh. So. You give me a hardo. I, I wanted to know what chirps meant. Like when someone would say an insult, and you'd say chirps. Yeah, hold on. Because hey, maybe you can Paul go back put, to maybe, maybe Paul, Paul put an entry into <laughs> Urban Dictionary for chirps. That's you oh, know what. That that's that's what authors should have to do. If you invent slang, you also have to define it on UrbanDictionary.com. Um, when playing online games, one may say chirp towards all the noob players. That's chirping. Uh, the process of talking large amounts of shit towards stupid individuals. That's the Urban Dictionary. Oh, I definition. think that fits. I think that's how they were using it. Yep. Chirp. The act of excessively talking unnecessarily. The act of spewing shit from one's mouth. Bob says, yo, you're such a fucking fag. Joe says, stop chirping. Yeah, there you go. There's two new words for our, for our book to listeners. Hardo and chirp. The, the use of the word chirp. Let's never use hardo again. Yeah. It doesn't it just doesn't sound natural. I feel bad for that generation that has to be saddled with such a lame sounding word. Next time next time I come across a group of thirteen year old boys, I'm gonna be like, hey, stop being such a hardo. And I'm gonna see if they react in a way like, whoa, that guy knows our lingo or if right. they're like, I'm calling the police because that guy just sexually assaulted you. <laughs> that guy said hard. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. So what else we got going on, Livius? Rob, I feel like I feel like we should have a moment of silence for, for you, because I know you're having a rough day. How about a moment of quiet rage or just a moment of like intense screaming? Um Yeah, dude, this is like the worst so alright, I'm gonna take a, a we'll take a trip back in time to when Hannibal, uh the T V show was uh not renewed for a fourth season. Uh it was devastating and it hurt me, and and I was upset, and I was sad, and all that kind of stuff. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, at least I've got Penny Dreadful. <laughs> that was really like, that was my life raft in in the uh, the shipwreck of of losing Hannibal. Was at least I've got Penny Dreadful. And then you found out the Penny Dreadful ran off in the woods in the middle of one night. <sighs> I know, Penny Dreadful went missing. <laughs> um, so. For people who don't know, we're recording this on Monday the 20th, which is the day after what uh, I did not know until today, where the final two episodes of Penny Dreadful aired, uh, Sunday the 19th. Um, and here's, alright, so this, this is just, it's even more frustrating because last night I was like, yeah, I knew Penny Dreadful, and I watched the episode knowing that there was one more episode coming up in the season. I get to work and social media starts to flare up with, Hey, Penny dreadful got canceled. Um, and I'm texting with, uh, Misty and Jesse who are, uh, my, you know, my Penny dreadful, like besties. Well, they're my besties anyway, but like, they're the two other people who love Penny dreadful as much as I do. And they're like, so that's it. No more episodes. And I was like, no, there's one more. And they said, you mean besides the two that posted last night? And I realized, Oh man, I watched one of the two that came out last night. Then I discovered Penny Dreadful was canceled. So I had to go home with all this heartbreak and despair to watch the final episode of Penny Dreadful. Although I'm I'm troubled by your loss because I still think back to when the OC was canceled and how I felt then. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder mathematically one of the three of you has to not love one of these shows, but like watches it and pretends to just to, to stay part of the clique. Oh, because we both, we all, all three of us just were madly in love with Hannibal? Yes. Yeah. Maybe it started before Hannibal. Maybe maybe Misty is just like, I can't stand these fucking TV shows, but what the hell else am I going to talk to these guys about if, <laughs> if, I, if I'm not? So. No, because um, we've tried to get her to like those uh, Professor Brothers cartoons, and she just will not. She refuses to to enjoy those no matter what we do so right. well god bless her for that at least yeah so. so she's not just doing it to be part of the group rob i'm very sorry for your loss but as i understand it um 
Yeah. Um, Preacher might be filling the void. Is that? That's. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, it. It's in its third episode of the first season, and um, I just watched it to see what it was about. But it is fucking good. It's on my list, along yeah. with this final season of Penny Dreadful. <laughs> I will get to them eventually. <laughs> you, uh, you haven't watched the uh, any of the preacher. I have not. I am trying. The next thing I need to watch is is uh, Boys Before Flowers. I'm on like episode 14, and I can't seem to bring myself back to, to watching that. So mm. I have to wrap that up before I move into anything else. I think. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an endorsement for Preacher from someone else that should move it up. I think a little bit. I was having a text conversation with Craig Clevenger the other night about Banshee, among other things, and this is an exact quote. Preacher, this is all capital letters in a text message. Preacher, holy mother of shit, they fucking nailed it. That's his review. That is a ringing endorsement. Holy um, mother of shit. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to go on the, the DVD cover when the complete season is out. <laughs> oh man, how great would that be? If I break the Clevenger blurb and they're like, oh man, that's got to go in the DVD. Clevenger gotta, yeah, so... Um, I am sad about Banshee. Did we talk on the podcast about Banshee ending? Yeah, we had a whole conversation about it. I didn't remember if that was on the air or off, but um, that's why that's why Craig Levenger was texting me about Banshee. Was um, I think he listened to the episode and then uh, that's what got him to start watching it. Very cool. Um, that being said, Lazy Summer of Podcasting is only one review episode away, so Ooh. there will be more time for TV shows. I guess we're not spending five six hours a week reading a book. So the Lazy Summer of Podcasting, uh, this is the second year we're doing it. So this is the Lazy Summer of Podcasting 2016. The idea is uh, we're not reviewing books, but pretty much everything else is open season, right? Yeah, and I mean, we failed on the last Lazy Summer of Podcasting to not review books, so who knows? <laughs> now, and that's, there. That, bears, that bears talking about because I know that there are at least two. Um, books that will release during the summer. So, um, it's kind of funny, so I'm looking through the calendar right now and I see July 4th and it says Independence Day and I'm like, is that when that movie comes out? And I realize, oh no, it's the holiday. No, oddly enough, Independence Day comes out this Friday. <laughs> of course. June twenty like 3rd or whatever. The one book that I know that we're going to have to interrupt the Lazy Summer of Podcasting for is that new Harry Potter and the Cursed Child uh, book that's going to be coming out. That's the play adaptation um, in two parts or whatever. I think it's one book, but it's a two-part play. So we're definitely going to be interrupting the Lazy Summer of Podcasting for that stuff. Yeah, the guy from Horns is in that book, right? Um, yeah, the guy from Horns is in that book. Okay. Yep. All right. That's, yeah. that's pretty much what I know about this Harry Potter stuff. So, Wizards and the guy from Horns. Um, yeah, but that'll give us more time for TV. There's going to be some interviews and stuff coming up. Um, uh, oh, yeah. For- that was going to be my point. Um, we already have some good ideas for interviews, so hopefully um, those will follow through because um, hopefully we'll have some interviews in the style that we haven't done before. Um, but I think we have some more immediate interviews coming up, too. I'm also going to make a promise, and I know that me slapping my hand on the desk makes for terrible podcasting, but I just wanted to do that. All interviews will be one-part interviews. <laughs> Are you making fun of our friends over at This Is Horror? Make it a little fun of our friends over at This Is Horror. See, and that's what they don't get, like... If you get someone interesting to interview, and I'm, and that's not me saying they don't, but they need to believe in like you know the cachet that their uh, that their interviewees have. We fucking will. We'll just be like, oh, we talked to Craig Clevenger for two and a half hours. Someone will listen to it, and we just put it up two and a half hour long episode because people will listen. They might not listen to it all in one shot, but they'll, they'll listen. Yeah. So. All one part interviews, just getting it out there. That's what we're going to do. Um, we're already working on the first series of interviews. Series. Right there. It's going to be a series of series. And that's vague enough where if one thing falls through, at least we got the other thing, right? This is true, right? So, <laughs> next up, our final review. Um, I know this will be because technically summer starts tomorrow. Um, probably today, if you're listening, or yesterday, depending on how long it takes you to get around to this podcast. But uh, like a month ago, maybe depending on. 
Soul Standard is next. I just turned around to grab it off the bookshelf and realized that it is not on the bookshelf. So, oh, man. Is this going to be another S.G. Brown no, alter no, ego no. situation? Look behind Did, the dresser. I didn't put it on the bookshelf. It is on a dresser. It's not in this room. Soul Standard, the <laughs> much-anticipated, probably... This probably trumps every other book that we've been waiting for, except possibly Last Projector. Um, but either way, it's going to be close. But this is a collection of four novellas uh, in a shared kind of world, shared world, shared city type of situation. And they're written by Nick Corpon, Caleb J. Ross, Axel Tayari, and Richard Thomas. Anybody that's been following the podcast for a very long time would know that we went to a very premature... Uh, celebration party in Los Angeles in the summer of 2012 when the book was finished. Yeah, we've been waiting for this longer than anything else, and I'm going to say this. Man, good luck, Soul Standard authors, because i got to tell you, as long as we've been waiting, I think it's going to be tough to live up to the anticipation. Right, yeah. I mean, like, this would be like going all summer like just seeing a girl every day and you're just like you're just trying to take it to that next level and you think every day is going to be that day and it just doesn't happen but for like four years I'm not sure <laughs> maybe it's like that I don't know I, I keep thinking of Godspeed <laughs> well Christopher Bear Godspeed is done Godspeed's coming out wait there's re-edits Godspeed now fucking that was like 10 years ago <laughs> Godspeed now could not get two stars from anybody because now it would have to be like the perfect the, book. Yeah, it would have to be like the Holy Bible, but written as a collaboration between Stephen King and uh, what was that fucking <laughs> Parker Foster? What the fuck's his name? Wallace guy. David the, Foster Wallace. That guy and um, oh. the the guy who wrote um, What We Do in the Shadows, but done <laughs> in comic book I think that style. Was Parker Foster. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you get where I'm going with yeah, this, yeah. right? So, Soul Standard. Good luck, man. The Zank. Yeah. Hey, great job putting it out, guys. But, man, I don't know. It's It's got a tough hill to climb now. The anticipation is uh, it's thick in the air. I'm just I'm really hopeful that all of the technology and everything is what would be available, like, six years ago when everybody started writing this. You know what I'm saying? It's dated just by virtue <laughs> of the fact that they wrote it so long ago. That's, uh, yeah, that could be. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. All I know is that I'm sad that the digital edition will not be available until after we post our review, because I really wanted to read that on a Kindle. I, I do have a paper copy. Thank you, Dezenk, for providing that. So we will be, I will be reading the second paper book in a row. So that's also... Your, on well, your current paper cuts don't even have time to heal. On top of the anticipation got to get over, you know there's already that minus one star for paper books, so... <laughs> I don't know. So wait, was your uh, was your disappearance at Devil's Rock score originally a six star review? The world will never know. Mm. Um, would you say that this uh, book is as anticipated as what's the sequel? What's that sequel movie that you know has already been recorded? But like, oh, motherfucker, Road to Hell. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Road to Hell Listen, is more anticipated. I have scoured the corners of the internet, legally, illegally, I cannot obtain a copy of Road to Hell, which frustrates me because ultimately, <laughs> I know if I would have begged and pleaded just right, and, and I'm, not, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but one of those authors would have given me a copy of The Soul Standard to read. I'm not going to say which one, but I know one of them would have. Yeah, at least one of them would have. Now... Not one of those motherfuckers that said, hey, here's a bootleg copy of Road to Hell for you to watch. Well, so, I mean, they are authors. That's true. So, <laughs> um, yeah, Road to Hell, the sequel uh, to Streets of Fire, <laughs> in case anybody's wondering what, what this craziness is that I'm talking about. Filmed entirely in front of a green screen with the guy from Streets of Fire in it. And two crazy, <laughs> like, like, lesbian murderous strippers or something as the antagonists. Sounds amazing. It does sound a little amazing, doesn't it? Um, I just like to bring that up so that you have to agonize about it on the on occasion. Yeah, I haven't thought about it in days. Yeah. Um. I I can't think of anything else we have to talk about. 
I can't either. Um, hey, Rob and I did a second book live that's available on YouTube. <laughs> I guess I have to do one more. And if yeah, and if it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't fare better than the first two. Here's um, I think the secret to success on this is announcing it more than two hours before we go on air. Maybe having some topics prepared and knowing what we're going to talk about is a strong second there. But I will um, tell you, we do go an hour and 40 minutes with zero plans. <laughs> so if you think interlude episodes are bad, that's because we take an hour and 40 minutes of unplanned bullshit and edit the, it down. Yeah. That's like the real, I think that's the real beauty and value of us is you put a microphone in front of us and you start recording, we'll find something to say. Eventually. So some of the topics that were covered refresh my memory. We talked about ghosts, conspiracy <laughs> theory. Livius being a truther. Uh, me being a truther. <laughs> Um, I'm like a half-truther. Uh, yeah, we talked a lot about that. We talked about beer, again, a lot. Yep. We tried to figure out the time delay thing, and we figured out that it's a time <laughs> machine. <laughs> Where if Rob does something, it actually happens before he does it. Which is kind of <laughs> interesting, so there's that. Um, yeah, it's we really... had Search Bar Chris popped in for a little bit. Oh, that was Search nice. Bar Chris. And Livius like opened up a time portal so we could see like a thousand search bars on his on his screen. Yep. Um, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Um, that was. Uh, I think that that pretty much covers. I don't remember. There was a bunch of other stuff, but uh, it, it's worth checking out. It's on our YouTube channel. Is that YouTube.com/slash Booked Podcast? It is. So you can check it out over there. It's called Booked Live. Ep two, I believe. Mm-hmm. Did you catch the the title, the description I gave it? No, not at all. All right. So after the first one, I set up the second <laughs> one. It gives you a little description, and the first one said, you know, whatever two guys talk about stuff or, or whatever. The second one said contains alcohol because you were so drunk during the first one. <laughs> I was pretty drunk. I only had one beer this time, but it got yeah, me kind of toasty. Like a- 40-ounce beer at, like, 30% alcohol or it's whatever. It's like drinking a bottle of wine, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, it contains alcohol was the tagline for that one. I, I knew you didn't see it because you would have mentioned it. I thought felt like you would have mentioned it. <laughs> uh, that's correct. All right, so come back next week where we will review the Soul Standard. Um, we didn't mention. Also, f- internally, 4C is what we've been calling that for years. Yeah, because it was originally right? called Four Corners, yeah. Yep. So, the yeah, yep. We were calling it 4C or Four Corners pretty much up until someone showed us the cover and we we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I think someone at one point said Soul Standard. I was like, what the fuck is that? And I was like, oh, oh. I just, I think we discovered it when we were reviewing something else by Richard Thomas. And yep. it's like yep. he wrote you know, books and one of them was Soul Standard. And I'm like, I never fucking heard about Soul Standard. And you're like, yeah, it's Four Corners. I was like, oh, yeah. well, there that is. So uh, that's coming up next, and then uh, we'll see what's after that. But but we have some stuff in the works. All worked up. All worked up. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.